Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello and welcome back to the podcast known as Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, Michael officially, but with me across the table is my good friend, Matthew, who does not go by Matt. I do not. No. There's only one T in my name. So you would be like doormat. Exactly. Yeah, that, and you're not anybody's doormat, oh, my no. friend. <laughs> you know that. No, no, definitely. <laughs> if you try and step on Matthew. He steps back. <laughs> he steps back, which is good. Yeah. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. I've got the fever for the flavor of dark poutine. You do. I do. If you have a fever, take an aspirin. (laughs) And call me in the morning. Yeah. Before we get started, I want to say thanks to Matthew for researching and writing the bones of this episode. I am immensely grateful to have the help. Hannah Buxbaum was found dead July 5, 1984, on a highway near London, Ontario, after having been shot by roadside bandits three times in the head as her husband, Helmuth Buxbaum, and their young nephew, Roy, in town from Vancouver for a visit, watched helplessly. The bandits sped off with Hannah's purse and police were called. No one could figure out why anyone would want to murder Hannah Buxbaum, who was as close to being a living saint that anyone could find. The press initially labeled the case the Good Samaritan murder until the true story unfolded. This story has so many twists and turns and crazy elements. The Bucksbaums, being millionaire owners of several nursing homes, there were huge sums of money involved. There's cocaine, sex addiction, sex workers, double-crossing, nuclear bunkers filled with tobacco and alcohol, people being dangled by their feet off 14th floor balconies, worries of rocket launcher attacks, and courtroom spectacles. No less than a motley crew of seven people were charged in the killing of the earnest, salt-of-the-earth woman until finally the truth came out. You are listening to Dark Poutine, episode 195, Death of a Saint, The Murder of Hannah Buxbaum. Doing the research for this episode, the only negative thing that we could find that had ever been said about Hannah Buxbaum was from a bank teller who thought she was kind of short with me once, but then I realized she was just a little bit shy. People are usually much harder on the wealthy when they were looking for flaws. And it appeared Hannah Buxbaum didn't have many. Literally, that's the only thing that was negatively said about her, which was sort of a, oh, but then I realized she was just shy. Maybe she's having a bad day. Yeah, Yeah. In 1984, when all this took place, the Buxbaum's son, Philip, estimated that his parents were worth $30 million. That's almost a whopping $80 million in today's cash. They had made their money building a large chain of nursing homes across Ontario and eastern Canada, literally from the ground up, through grit, intelligence, and determination. 
Despite this amount of wealth, the only outward sign of it was their large house. Hannah had wanted a home that big to fill with as many children as possible and to have room for her family to visit when they came. To her, home, family, and church were everything. Hannah bought clothes for herself and Helmuth at discount stores, and when Helmuth suggested they buy a Mercedes, she felt that it was too ostentatious, settling instead for a run-of-the-mill brown station wagon. Together, they were known in the community as wealthy, self-made, philanthropic church-going folk and pillars of their community. Both of their lives, though, started much more humbly in war-torn Europe. Hannah was born Hannah Schmidt in June 1936 to German parents living in Poland near the Russian border. She was in grade four when war broke out and the young girl's world began collapsing around her. Her parents did not agree with Nazism and one day a young Russian soldier knocked on their door for help as he was injured and hungry. They took him in and hid him in the basement. They knew that they risked death by the Nazis if they were found out, but they did it anyway. This act of kindness proved to save Hannah's life later. From the book by Heather Bird, Conspiracy to Murder, quote, Later, when the Russian army pushed into Poland, the Schmidt's kindness paid off. When Russian soldiers discovered the family's German background, they lined the family up against a fence for execution. The Schmidts stood and trembled as the soldiers loaded their guns. Miraculously, at the last possible moment, a Russian officer sauntering up the laneway recognized the doomed captives as his saviors from several years before, and their lives were spared. End quote. Seconds and inches, eh? Seconds and inches. So, had he not shown up when he did, 30 seconds later, we wouldn't be telling this story at no, all. It's incredible. Yeah. You know, looking at what these people went through, mm -hmm. <laughs> like Hannah and her family. Yeah. It, you can only imagine that that's going to have like a deep, deep impact on how you live your life going forward. Yeah. How you treat other people. Yeah. Yeah. Especially this particular event. Yeah. Like you see that you are saved because you treated someone kindly yeah. years before. Yeah. The book goes on to say that there was a limit to this clemency, though. The family's land was confiscated, their crops destroyed, and they were sent to prison. Hannah's sister Martha escaped, but her father was sent to a work camp in Siberia and never heard from again. Hannah, her other sister, and mother were forced into hard labor with little food and commanded to march for hours on end. To understand Hannah, her faith, and her devotion to husband and family, Bird's book sums it up. Quote, Hannah spent many, many hours in the camp comforting the younger children who had lost their mothers. She was one of the lucky ones who had a surviving parent. She would rock the younger children to sleep, trying to provide what comfort she could in a bleak world. At night, alone in her bed, she would talk to someone and ask for help. Only later did she realize that person she was talking to all those years was God. She became born again in the Christian faith and never wavered in her strict religious beliefs, end quote. If only everyone who claimed to be members of loving religion could practice what they preach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. You know, and I think Hannah was actually one of those people, you know, yeah. as we'll see as the show goes and others, maybe not so much, but she stuck to what she believed in. Yeah. And she was a big believer in helping people and giving people second chances. I've known a few people like that throughout my life. My grandmother, Vera, was a very religious person, and she was not big on coming after others. Yeah. She practiced what she preached. She was lovely. She was my rock through all my dark times. She yeah. knew I was going through the darkness that I was in. Yeah. And never once judged me, just loved me through it. Yeah. You know, and not loved me in a way where it was like, didn't want to rock the boat. Yeah. I could tell she was worried at times. Yeah. I could tell that she was concerned. And, and Hannah strikes me like one of these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, the world needs more people like that, yeah. frankly. Absolutely. Since that horrifying time, Hannah was on a quest for stability. A conservative woman with a strong sense of faith, she lived by the German mantra, Kinder Kuke Kerke, Children Kitchen Church. To her, the need for family instability was etched into her soul deeply at a very young age. Helmuth Buxbaum was born into poverty in 1938 in the German province of East Prussia, just as the gears of war started turning. 
Eventually, as the Russians started to infiltrate the east, with his older brother and father away at battle, his mother fled with Helmuth and seven of his brothers and sisters. They ended up in a refugee camp near Leipzig. Again, from Heather Bird's book, Conspiracy to Murder, quote, Then life became a daily fight for survival. The family scrounged garbage and, on more than one occasion, dined on the carcasses of cats and dogs while the Third Reich collapsed around them, end quote. For Helmuth, the war experience burnt the needs to be wealthy, to be able to escape, and to never be on the brink of starvation again into his soul. Eventually, after the war, both Hannah and Helmuth emigrated separately at different times to Canada, both moving to and eventually meeting in Kitchener, Ontario. For our listeners familiar with Kitchener, it will come as no surprise that these two German-speaking immigrants settled there. Kitchener has a large German population and the largest Oktoberfest outside of Germany. In fact, Kitchener was named Berlin in 1833 after the capital of then Prussia and later the German Empire. On September 1, 1916, the name Berlin became unsavory for residents after Great Britain and Canada's entry into the First World War. A referendum was held and the city was renamed Kitchener after Lord Kitchener, the recently deceased British Secretary of State for War, kind of as an in-your-face to the German population. Hannah and Helmuth were introduced by Helmuth's mother and were married, eventually moving to Kamoka, having five children and adopting a sixth, and building a massive nursing home empire. From the outside, they looked like they had everything they could have ever wanted. Their escape was a success, and they were the pinnacles of immigrants living the Canadian dream. A lot of people emigrated to Canada after the Second World War, specifically, because things in Europe were still pretty messy. Yeah. And I wonder why it was so many came to Canada as opposed to other places. I mean, people could have gone, but a lot of people went to the U.S. as well. Yeah. But what, I wonder what it was that attracted people here to Canada. Uh, I know for my, my grandmother had fallen in love with a Canadian soldier mm. in Amsterdam. So she came here and my mother was born. Yeah. Yeah. So she was a Dutch war bride, came over on one of those boats. She never quite achieved what the Bucksbaums did yeah. as far as financial success. But when it came to family, all the photos that I've seen of, uh, her. I never met her. She seemed as though she was a pretty steady Eddie. Yeah. Yeah. I think there were programs, um, to bring people over. Yep, There were. Yeah. And I think also that families start following each other. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's how little communities happen because it's true because they, Hey, my aunt and uncle went there. So I'm going as well. You know, like why, why do we have such a big, uh, population here actually here in Surrey? Mm hmm of people not from India, but from the Punjab specifically. Yes, right? South, South Asian people. And yeah. I think it, it started with probably like a few people or a few families. and Yeah, yeah. and there's a lot of uh, farming families yeah. from there that yeah. have sort of transferred their farming yeah. prowess to yeah. uh, British Columbia. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool like to think about how communities develop. And yeah, Surrey's a great example. You of know, I, I can, when I moved to Moscow... Yeah, mm -hmm. I was in a building, and a whole bunch of a whole bunch of us Americans, Canadians, and Brits lived like literally in the same building. You you hang out with each other. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. You hang out with the people who live life the way you're used to, and the language you speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That can be problematic too if the language in the country though is is one that you don't speak. You're less likely to want to learn if. If. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I was kind of pissed off that I hung out with so many English speakers when I was in Moscow. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the end, I was hanging out with a lot of Russians as well, but I would have picked up the language a lot faster. Yeah, I, I have never lived in a place where another language is spoken. I mean, there's a little bit of French in Nova Scotia, but not a lot. Um, well, you, you live in Surrey. I live in Surrey, but the predominant language here is English. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I don't have to speak. No. It's not like I moved to the Punjab yeah, and, and have to learn. Go to the shop and nobody's going to speak to you because they don't know your language. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that would prompt me to want to learn, but if I'm living with a bunch of other English speakers, yeah. I'm going to hope to goodness that I can take one of them with me to the shop to ask the, the questions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> On the morning of July 5th, 1984, after enjoying a family breakfast, 
Hannah and Helmuth Buxbaum got into their brown station wagon and gassed it up at their own private gas pump, which was on the grounds of their huge estate outside the village of Kamoka, Ontario. They were driving to Toronto that day to pick up their 14-year-old nephew, Roy, who was flying in from Vancouver to visit for the summer and to work in one of their many nursing homes. They planned to stop and see Hannah's sister back home in Kitchener on their way. As they began their journey, just a few kilometers down Highway 402, they noticed a blue Chevy Nova with its hood up parked on the side of the road. They pulled up behind it to offer help. A man walked up and tapped on Hannah's passenger side window and asked if she had a spare pair of pantyhose because his fan belt broke and he needed to repair it. When Hannah said she didn't, Helmuth got out of the car and walked with the man to the front of the Blue Nova where a second man was standing. A minute later, Helmuth heard Hannah honk their car horn. He went back. Hannah, always a selfless woman, had decided to take the very pair of pantyhose she was wearing off in order to help and handed them to Helmuth who returned with them to the other car. Just then, Constable Phil Medlin from the nearby Strathroy Police Department pulled up in front of them and yelled from a distance, asking if they were okay. The driver of the Nova said yes, it was just a small problem that had been fixed. The constable left. Helmuth exchanged a few words with the man and got back into his car and drove off with Hannah, who mentioned as an aside that the two men seemed creepy. About an hour and a half later, they arrived at Hannah's sister and brother-in-law's in Kitchener. Her brother-in-law, Hans Wagner, suggested that they stay for lunch before heading into Toronto. Helmuth declined, saying he was taking his wife to a restaurant. Hannah added, And when my honey invites me, I go out with my honey for lunch. That was the last time that Hans and Hannah's sister would see Hannah alive. After leaving Hannah's sister's home in Kitchener, they drove to the Toronto airport to pick up their nephew, Roy. Hannah decided to stay in the car and nap off the lunch they'd grabbed on the way, while Helmuth went in to wait for the teen. Once Roy arrived, Helmuth said he needed to make a business call and went to a nearby payphone out of the earshot of Roy, who was patiently waiting for his luggage. Once Roy had collected his bags, he and his uncle walked back to the car, Roy hugged his aunt, hello, and they set off for the drive home. Roy, tired from his journey, was dozing in the back seat. Just as they were a few kilometers from home on Highway 402, Roy heard his uncle say to Hannah that there was a car up ahead that looked like a neighbor's car, broken down, and that he was going to stop and see if they needed help. Roy had no idea that they'd stopped for a car already that day in almost exactly the same spot, just on the other side of the road. As their car rolled to a stop, a masked gunman with a pair of pantyhose, yes, those pantyhose, pulled over his face opened Roy's door and, putting a 32 caliber pistol to his temple, yelled for him to lay down in the back seat and not look up. The man then opened Hannah's door and yelled at her to give him her money and jewelry, quickly grabbed her by the hair, and began pulling her out of the car. At this point, Helmuth got out of the driver's side and closed the door. Roy kept his head down but glanced up a few times to see that his uncle stayed by the side of the car. The last thing Roy heard before the passenger door closed was Hannah sobbing, Please, don't hurt me. I have five children at home. Roy, as he heard three gunshots, sat up to see the man with his aunt's purse in his hands jump into a blue Chevy Nova that had other people in it. As it sped away, Roy noticed the car's license plate was covered. And we'll take a break right here. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. How could anybody think this is anything but an execution, Matthew? Yeah. You know, the the truth will come out, right? Mm -hmm. But there's no reason yeah. to be killing somebody randomly on the side of the road when you want her purse. No, and especially when she's handing you her purse yeah. and saying, don't hurt me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, th this is really driving me nuts about this case. So let's read on. Yeah. 
Helmuth exclaimed, Oh my God, they shot her, and ran to the middle of the highway to flag down an approaching freight truck. Roy ran to his aunt, who was face down on the ground and looked dead. Trucker Colin Lawrence stopped. Buxbaum told him his wife had been shot and needed to call for help, but Lawrence's CB was broken. Another passerby, Mark Halden, stopped and rushed to Hannah to check on her. Even after being shot three times, Halden found that Hannah had a light pulse and was still breathing. Buxbaum had not once went near his wife to check on her, so Halden assumed that Helmuth was simply a bystander and yelled at him from a distance, You better get the hell to Strathroy and get some help. Buxbaum and his nephew got back into the station wagon and sped away. Next, an Esso truck stopped at the scene and radioed for help just as they left, but they carried on. OPP Constable Greg Calcott took the call and was the first at the scene. When he got there, Colin Lawrence described the chain of events and told the police officer that Buxbaum, the man who had left, was acting weird. Calcott put out an APB for both the blue Chevy Nova and the brown station wagon. Police Sergeant Roger Eyeslady was parked a few kilometers away and had just heard the bulletin when the station wagon came to a screeching halt beside him, and Helmuth and Roy jumped out asking for help. The two were frisked, told that the station wagon would be impounded to be checked, and then they were taken to the Strathroy Police Station where they were interviewed. Helmuth was taken to the hospital in London, Ontario, where he found out that his wife had died about an hour before, never having regained consciousness. A police officer was at the hospital and noticed how Buxbaum didn't seem that upset, and that he had only cried for a few minutes, and though he didn't see any actual tears. He was also thinking about the fact that Roy, in his interview, had stated that Buxbaum never went to check on his wife but they had no evidence of wrongdoing on his part, so they let Buxbaum leave with his pastor to go tell his six children that their mother was dead. Early the next morning, the 6th of July at 2.13 a.m., OPP Detective Inspector Ron Piers, who was assigned to the case, stood at the murder scene and couldn't make sense of it. The pieces were not fitting. Why would the woman be killed despite being willing to give the culprits what they were asking for? Why did the husband not even check on his wife? Why did the husband and nephew not get hurt at all? And most damningly, why did the husband go past the turnoff ramp that they would need to have taken home to help a disabled car on the side of the road that from the ramp was almost impossible to see? Pierce called for an ongoing search for the blue Chevy Nova, set up a tip line, and informed the media of the ongoing investigation and how to get in touch with police if someone knew anything. Two days after the murder on July 7th, Constable Phil Medlin suddenly remembered that he had stopped on the morning of the 5th when he saw a blue Chevy Nova and a brown station wagon near the very spot of the crime. From the book Conspiracy to Murder, quote, When Medlin got back to the station, he was quite excited when he recognized the man talking to Ron Pierce, Buxbaum, as one of those who had been pulled over beside Highway 402 that morning, end quote. Buxbaum really didn't have a good answer for why he hadn't mentioned that he'd stopped earlier that morning for a car that looked the same, saying he forgot about it after the murder had happened. Inspector Pierce was seriously doubting Helma's story at this point. Seeds of doubt started to blossom into the certainty that Helmuth had something to do with his wife's murder as tips poured into the hotline, watering the ground with torrents of truth, truths that totally drowned out Helmuth's pillar of the community front. Many callers said that they saw the blue Chevy Nova parked along the highway on the morning of the 5th, seemingly waiting for something. That Helmuth Buxbaum had a massive cocaine habit and was injecting it daily. They also said that Helmuth Buxbaum was known to many of the sex workers in London, hiring a number of them weekly, throwing cocaine-fueled sex parties. Helmuth had also been asking some of these sex workers to procure underage girls for him, which none of them did. Helmuth had also spent $200,000 of the company's money on these parties and that other business partners had to stop him from being able to access the company's line of credit. Helmuth was also sexually harassing teenage girls and women at his company and those who complained he fired. But all of that doesn't point to him murdering his wife, just to him being a bad guy. However, some other calls really piqued Inspector Pierce's interest. The name Robert Barrett kept coming up. Barrett was a pimp and a drug dealer and an addict with a $700-a-day coke habit. 
Callers were saying that Barrett was Helmuth's supplier, and they always partied together. Two sex workers called to say that Helmuth had asked both of them if they knew how they could find someone to kill his wife. A bank teller and a gold dealer called in to say that Bucksbaum was taking out large amounts of cash and cashing in gold bars just a day after his wife's death. Finally, when two other pieces of information came in over the next day, Inspector Pierce was totally convinced that Bucksbaum was at the center of this murder after hearing these further facts. Number one, a man was arrested on an unrelated warrant while stumbling home from a party in which this Robert Barrett was attending. To try and help his own situation with police, he told them that Barrett was bragging at the party about how Bucksbaum had given him money to hire a hitman to kill Hannah. And totally by chance, a police officer at London Airport oversaw Helmuth meeting with Barrett and handing him a package just a few days after the murder, and then reported it to Piers. No wonder there are programs like Crime Stoppers. Holy crap, that's a lot of information that people called in with. Yeah, and I think we'll see that there's a lot of unsavory characters that were blabbing their mouths all over the place, sure. right? So There's no honor among thieves, no. right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I saw this. I saw that. Yeah, police can put together a pretty good picture if they have a little piece of information from this person. Yeah. A little bit of... Then something inf- clicks, right? Yeah. Something clicks. The timeline starts to fall together. Yeah. It's really fascinating. It's like pieces of a puzzle. Yeah. Piers got a judge to issue a warrant for tracers on cars and wiretaps on the phones of Barrett, his known associates, and Bucksbaum. With the wiretaps, the truth was finally seen in its entirety. It became evident that Helmuth hired a motley crew of London's underbelly to kill his wife. A sting operation was put into place. Some of the operations within it were dramatic, with police boarding airplanes and just before takeoff, arresting some of the culprits who were trying to flee to the Caribbean. Others were arrested in cities across the country and flown back to London. But the question that needs to be asked is, why had Helmuth done it? It came out during Helmuth's murder trial. Nobody really knows what goes on in a marriage, and this was especially the case with the Bucks bombs. Everyone thought they had the perfect life, but their marriage was in turmoil, all due to Helmuth, with Hannah constantly trying to save the marriage, to save the family, and to save her husband. For her efforts, Helmuth had her killed because she, quote, was a pain in the ass. After only six years of marriage, Helmuth started having affairs, first with a sex worker that he admitted to his wife, She forgave him, thinking it was a one-off, and as it was a sex worker, she felt it was just about sex and not an affair that would take him away from her. But the affairs continued. Bucksbaum had a string of them, with nurses at his business and with many more sex workers. He said at one time he was meeting 50 women a month, often two at a time. He was a sex addict. Hannah didn't know the depth of the problem, however. You become a real different person in addiction. and. I I remember um, when I was in the midst of it myself, at one point thinking to myself, I am not doing the things that my parents raised me to do. Mm. I am not the person they want me to be. You weren't the person that you wanted to be as well. Yeah. And that's the thing. I I would think to myself, I am not proud of who I have become, Yeah, but I can't stop. Mm -hmm. I got to wonder though, is this what entered into Helmuth's head? You know, as he's hiring somebody to kill his wife, is it just like, oh, I'm in the midst of an addiction, so I need to do what I can to further feed that? It doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't seem like he had any conscience at all. Yeah. At one point, Helmuth impregnated a 17-year-old employee of one of their nursing homes. This was while Hannah was already pregnant with one of their children. He told Hannah, who said they needed to do the right thing and support the mother until she was married. She even tried to adopt the child later. A few years after that, Helmuth caught a sexually transmitted infection and passed it on to Hannah. At this point, Hannah, still fighting to save her marriage, got them to see a renowned sex and couples therapist, Dr. Chernick. But Helmuth ignored Chernick's advice, saying simply that Hannah was boring in bed. Hannah tried her best to keep him happy sexually, 
even to the point of looking into vaginal reconstruction surgery so he could have more pleasure with her. Hannah kept trying and trying to save their marriage. Eventually, Hannah noticed track marks on her husband's arms and found cocaine in his pocket. Worried about his health, she made him flush the coke and promised never to do it again. A few months after that, she found more cocaine in his pocket while doing laundry. At this point, she took him to a rehab center to be assessed, but after the assessment, he never went back like he said he would. It was around this time that Helmuth made the evil decision to have Hannah, his wife and mother of his children, murdered. Long-suffering Hannah that loved him and was only trying to save both him and their marriage. Helmuth first met Robert Barrett at Kelly's Bar in London, striking up a friendship that was based on Barrett arranging cocaine and sex workers for him. Helmuth started throwing drug parties in a hotel across from Kelly's. He eventually started shooting up cocaine. This is when Hannah saw the marks. One of the sex workers he'd been seeing regularly named Susan was told by Buxbaum that he wanted to divorce his wife, but she would get half of the money and the children. So he wanted to kill her. Susan, thinking he was joking, said she knew how to make a poison out of herbs. Helmuth latched onto this and kept asking her to get the poison for him, to the point that she eventually fled to London after telling a few friends what he had said. Another sex worker named Dawn was also asked by Buxbaum if she knew someone who could murder his wife. She said she didn't and stopped seeing him. Eventually, he asked Robert Barrett to arrange a contract killing. They put a few loose plans together, and then, in May 1984, Helmuth offered him $20,000 to find a hitman and $10,000 bonus if her body wasn't found for a year. Barrett flew to Florida to arrange a hitman, but he ended up partying the money away and called Buxbaum for more. Buxbaum flew to Florida to give him more money. He called Barrett daily for status checks once he got back to Canada until Barrett said he found a man named Paul who would do it. He hired Paul who said he would fly to Quebec, pick up a gun, and then drive to Ontario to kill Hannah. Buxbaum waited. But on the planned day of the murder, when nothing happened, they found out that Paul took off with the money. He never intended to do it. They'd been scammed. Barrett flew back to Canada and tried to find another killer, asking around in Kelly's bar. A man named Pat Allen said he would do it. Helmuth gave Barrett more money to hire Allen, but Barrett only gave Allen $200 as a down payment, and the rest went into cocaine and women, unbeknownst to Buxbaum. They met up and agreed that Allen would kill Hannah on the side of the road while they were on their way to Toronto to pick up their nephew. Helmuth felt the plan was in place, went home that night and spent the evening in his nuclear bunker under his house, shooting up cocaine. Helmuth had spent $250,000 on the bunker. He filled it with alcohol and tobacco to trade in case of a war or economic collapse. His early days experiencing war had never left him. And bonus, it was the perfect place to go and have time away from Hannah and the kids to do as he wished. That night, Alan got two of his friends... Gary Fauché and Terry Arms to help. The three men drank and did speed and cocaine all night long. They also got a few of their girlfriends to agree to help with any needed cover-up. The next morning, they waited by the side of the highway. Pat Allen stood by the car. Terry Arms hid in the ditch with a machine gun, and Gary Fauché waited in the car. There they waited, and when they saw the station wagon, they started waving. It was Pat Allen who asked about the pantyhose. When Buxbaum got out of his car and went to theirs wondering what was going on, why are they not killing her, Allen said it was too late and that there were too many cars on the road and that the police were changing shifts and often drive down the highway at this time. Helmut didn't agree and told him to do it. That's when Hannah honked the horn to offer the pantyhose and that's also when the OPP officer stopped to ask if they needed help. Alan told Helmuth it was over. No way they could do it now. Alan called Barrett when he got home to tell him that he was out. He was spooked after seeing the cop and didn't want to do the hit anymore. It was too risky. But Gary Fauché was in the room and he overheard the conversation saying that he would carry out the murder. Buxbaum had called them from the airport in Toronto while his nephew was waiting for his luggage. They put together a second plan to do the hit when the Bucksbombs were returning from the airport to collect young Roy. It was Gary Fauché who pulled the trigger. He had been wearing the pantyhose that Hannah had handed over that morning, 
thinking someone needed help. Terry Arms drove the getaway car. In testimony, the court heard what really happened. This is again from the book Conspiracy to Murder. As Arms recalls it, the scene unfolded as follows. Quote, The slightly paunchy millionaire with the receding hairline slid calmly from behind the steering wheel of the car onto the pavement of the highway. He slammed the door in his wife's face as she was scrambling across the front seat of the car, clawing toward the driver's side in an effort to escape the clutches of her killer. She was screaming, pleading for her life, as she stretched her arms out to the one she loved and trusted more than anyone in the world, her husband of 23 years, who was watching the tableau in safety. He just stood there, looking at me as Hannah was dragged from the car. He heard her say to Bucksbaum, No, honey, not like this. But he didn't blink an eye. He just stood there. Down in the culvert, she turned her hazel eyes beseechingly toward her killer. Perhaps she briefly touched the man's heart because... According to arms, the gunman turned, clinging to his victim with one hand, and pointed the tiny handgun at the watching, waiting businessman with the other. It should be you, you son of a bitch, he spat. Then he turned and fired at point-blank range. Her body twisted, and as she fell to the ground, she smashed face first into the mud. As the executioner fired two more shots, arms said Helmuth stood on his tiptoes so he could watch. End quote. They sped off and hid the car, threw the gun in the river, and a few days later, threw Hannah's purse in the river as well. When they realized that the heat was on, they took off to Toronto. The gun and the purse were later recovered by police as evidence. Barrett had not paid them for the hit. Having met them in Toronto, high as a kite, one of the men dangled Barrett off the 14th floor balcony, demanding their money. They'd killed a woman after all. Barrett rushed to the Toronto airport demanding to get on a flight and that it was, quote, life or death. The airline called London Airport to report this suspicious man. That's when the police officer saw Bucksbaum at the airport giving him a package, money that he'd taken out of the bank and by cashing in gold bars. Eventually, Piers rounded up all of them. In total, seven people were originally charged with the murder and conspiracy to commit murder. During the trial, Barrett and Allen cut deals with the Crown. Prosecutors wanted to nail Buxbaum. When the deals were announced in court, Buxbaum asked his lawyer, Edward Greenspan, what it meant. Greenspan turned to Buxbaum and said, It means you're fucked. Pretty direct, but with the millions that Buxbaum was paying him, I guess the harsh truth is what you're paying for. You may have heard of Greenspan. He was one of Canada's most famous and expensive defense lawyers, having represented people like Gerald Reagan, former Premier of Nova Scotia, Conrad Black, a media mogul, Peter Demeter, Garth Drabinsky, and Robert Latimer. After Barrett and Allen cut their deals, rumors started flying that Bucksbaum, with his wealth, was going to have them assassinated. There was a rumor of a rocket launcher attack that police took seriously enough to constantly change the route of their armored cars taking them to court, and they carried machine guns and hand grenades with them. But none of that happened. In 1985, Barrett and Allen were sentenced and were eligible for parole in 1988 and 87, respectively. Arms was sentenced to life with eligibility for parole in 10 years. Fauché, the gunman, got life in prison, as did Helmuth Buxbaum. Helmuth Buxbaum died in the Kingston Penitentiary on November 1, 2007, due to lung cancer. He was buried alongside Hannah in Campbell Cemetery in Kamoka, mere meters from their former home. So hang on. <laughs> the family decided to bury the murderer of their mother beside their mother. There's been time to forgive. Yeah. One of their sons who died a few years ago is also buried beside them now as well. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I found that odd when I was researching this. Yeah. Because I'm like, uh, I don't know how that decision would have been made. If my father had murdered my mother, I wouldn't be burying her beside him. Yeah, right? Right. I get it. A friend of mine who I have been talking to about perhaps coming on this show to talk to us went through a similar situation, except it was the mother who murdered the father. Right. And he and I have had interesting discussions that I think would be pertinent to this, that he still loves his mom, even though she took his father's life. Yeah. And he has to deal with that as her son and as 
his father's son. Yeah. It's not as easy as people think. It's not like the movies portray it. Dad killed mom or dad killed sister or whatever. Let's just hate dad. It doesn't always work that way. It's not so cut and dry. No, and, and the, the the gravestone itself has, you know, Hannah Schmidt, wife of Helmet. Mm-hmm. And underneath, their works do follow them. Their works do follow them. Yeah. So her good works do follow her and his not Bad so works good. Yeah. Follow him. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting inscription and... and and that's it for Dark Poutine episode 195. My gosh, we're five away from 200. <laughs> Death of a Saint, the murder of Hannah Buxbaum. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one 877 darkptn We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Let's listen to this week's first voicemail. The first one. <laughs> Hi, my name is Courtney. I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while. Um, I'm from Idaho. And I just wanted to say I just got done listening to your Halloween episode. Um, I noticed um, on the, the, the nursery rhyme that you guys said... Um, for Ring Around the Rosies, you said tissue, tissue, we all fall down. Um, where I'm from, I just wanted to share that we say actually ashes, ashes, we all fall down. So I thought that was like a fun little thing to share. And I just want to say that I really love you guys' podcast. Uh, I've been listening for almost two years now, and I hope you guys continue to make lots and lots more episodes for the years to come. Um, and I hope you guys are doing great. Have a nice day and go shit in your hat. Bye. <laughs> I honestly did not think that the go shit in your hat was coming on that one because she was like, oh, and have a nice day and, then, and go shit in your hat. I, I, We used to say ashes, ashes as well when I was growing up, but a tissue was apparently the original. In the UK, that's what they say. A tissue. Yeah, that's when I heard it there. Yeah. Yeah, we said ashes when we were young as well. Yeah, and it's not spelled like a tissue. It's A apostrophe T I S I O U U U U. It's like it's supposed to be it, a chew. It's an onomatopoeia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. An onomatopoeia. Like the word bum. Or buzz. <laughs> How is bum an onomatopoeia? Because my bum makes that sound bum. Bum. <laughs> Anyway, oh boy. on to the next voicemail. <laughs> Hi, Mike and Matthew and Steve. My name is Rebecca. I'm calling in from East Vancouver. I've been listening to the podcast for a while, and I'm addicted. It's definitely a highlight of my Monday mornings. I think that your research, storytelling, and humor just really make my long days working from home much more interesting. Um, I wanted to shout out episode 10 in particular, um, the episode, Mike, where you talk about meeting your monster. Um, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for speaking so candidly about this experience. Um, I'm a survivor of sexual assault myself, and I'm still navigating how to talk about and process and just generally make sense of it. I think that the more we're able to open up about these experiences that so, so many of us have, the greater the chances are of seeing some changes and healing in our society and your willingness to discuss this was very meaningful to me. Um, on a completely unrelated note, if you're ever looking for an intense and weird story idea, the murder of Kelly Cook in Standard, Alberta is quite the story, and it still terrifies my mom to this day. Um, so yeah, with that, thanks again for your fantastic podcast. Um, I'm always trying to be a good egg and not a bad apple, but with that, um, go take a shit in your hat. Bye. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. That's awesome. And I did not know that my dark story would have such value to other people so many years ago. I didn't realize what, how much I, it would be able to help people with their own stuff until actually I heard Jim Clemente share his story on another podcast. He's an FBI profiler, former prosecutor who chased people who were predators and he talked about his own personal story, and I thought, 
you know what, that was really powerful for me and I want to do that too. I think it's important to tell that story. So thank you very much. Um, <laughs> also, I am very aware of that Kelly Cook story that you mentioned and it is very much on my list to do soon. Boom, boom, boom. Thought the name sounded familiar. Yes, exactly. So She also lives in East London. No, she said East or, Vancouver. Sorry, East Vancouver. Yeah. I wonder if she'll babysit Steve. <laughs> Matthew was desperately looking for a babysitter for Steve for Christmas. He's like so, so bad. He's like, shilling I was, everywhere. I was like, literally, she has a nice voice. She seems really friendly. She's not very far away. Not a lot of people can have a dog in their home. I know. Somebody had kindly offered before, but with kids and cats, and Steve's just never been around them. So I, no, I wouldn't. I thanked, but it's like I, he just needs to be with a human. We don't need any mayhem happening. I wish you weren't traveling for Christmas. If I wasn't traveling. You could have the penthouse and Steve for a I week. Would, I would totally do that. <laughs> so, the, yeah, and my offer still stands. If I'm home and you guys want to go away, cool. I will totally come and take Thank care you. of your dog. I'm his emotional support human. <laughs> He's a good dog. All right. Here's the third voicemail for this one. Let's have a listen. Good morning, Dirk Patin. It's Lindsay from Tiny Town. Not actually Tiny Town. We're closer to about three hours away from Tirana, a.k.a. Toronto. I have... I'm a long-time listener to your show, and I can say it's gotten better in the most recent episodes I have been able to listen to. I am just calling because I wanted to say I do love your podcast. It has helped me a lot during my, extre during my extreme unprecedented times that I've been suffering through from my own PTSD as a child. I have recently started my own self-healing and struggled deeply what has stemmed from what has happened to me in the past. But I do have ways, for example, 5D painting art and listening to the dark, dark poutine on a weekly days. Thank you for all you do. And of course, as World War II states, you can't go parking in my spot, Mac. Why don't you go shit in your hat and pull it down over your ears? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah that's the that's the end of go shit in your hat go shit in your hat and pull it down over your ears okay yeah yeah, yeah. that's she's the first person who's ever sort of where, is, that where is it actually from i don't know okay you know where i got it i know i played it i played a bunch of people saying go shit on in your hat on the show at one point but um <laughs> i got it from the sopranos i'd heard it before but okay. i was really turned on to it by Junior Soprano said okay. it, among other foul things that he said on that show. <laughs> the most, the least foul thing that I could say. Was go shit in your hat. Was, uh, go shit in your hat. That's hilarious. But anyway, it Thanks. is also a thing that we say here in Canada. So that's why I sort of twigged on it. Thanks for calling in. Yeah. And go poop in your toque. From Tiny Town. From Tiny Town. A little tiny town, which is not. Filled with Oompa Loompas. Is it full <laughs> Oh, those Oompa Loompas were mistreated on that set. It's not a nice story. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> thank you. That's it for voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We would love, 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 love to hear from you. We would. We definitely would. I guess it's time for us to move on to Patreon and Donut Money donors Patreon. for the week. And first up, we have a patron from Hong Kong. Yay. Ashley Yu. Is Ashley, is this our first Hong Kong Patreon? I think we've had at least one more. Okay. But uh, Ashley Yu from Hong Kong. I love it when there's somebody who is from a place other than... Uh, <gasps> oh, and I was making fun of Ashley's today. Yeah. So your name is now... Tootsie La Flesh. To, or no, I think she's more Lily Lily de Laval. Lily de La, Oh yeah, the Lily of the Valley. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. I like that. Well, thank you from Hong Kong. And what does Ashley do there in Hong Kong, Matthew? I think she's like the empress of the island Shangri-La Hong Kong Hotel. Oh. Such a nice hotel. Oh. 
such a beautiful hotel. Are you telling me to move my hand away from my face? Because <laughs> yes. it's distracting the listeners? No, because I can't. It it actually Sorry. does make a difference. Sorry. <laughs> it muffles your voice. Yeah, exactly. So thank you, Ashley. Thank and, you, Ashley. And enjoy. I wonder if Ashley ever comes to Vancouver. I don't know. Lots of people from that area do. Uh, I know I used to work with a lot of people from Hong Kong, actually. You know, I heard that at one point, Vancouver, 15% of Vancouver was born in Hong Kong. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah. That's actually kind of cool. Just across the water. Just across the water. And next we have Heather. And Heather is from Smith's Falls, Ontario. Smith's Falls. And not Niagara Falls, but Smith's Falls. It's, yeah, it's owned by the Smith. It is is it? Yeah. The Smiths. Like uh, Morrissey owns it? Smith. Well, he did. Panic on the streets of London. Until he became a dick. Yeah. He's such a moany person. He's a moany moany. Moany moany. Moany moany. And what does Heather do there in Smith's Falls on Terrible? Don't call it on Terrible. I'm kidding. I knew it would get a rise out of you. <laughs> what does she do there, Matthew? She actually has um, behind the falls. Mm-hmm. There's like a secret passage. Oh dear! And uh, she's kind of like um, like Batman. Yeah, except Bruce, she's Bat Lady. She's she's Bat Person. I was gonna say Bruce Wayne. So what's a female version of Bruce? Heather. She's Heather, Heather Wayne. She's Heather Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. She like saves saves Smith Falls from the penguin in the Joker. Uh, okay. There you go. Thank Smith, you. Smith's Falls is Canada's Gotham. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Have you been? It's like, it's like, it's that big. <laughs> no, yeah. I didn't know it Sky, existed. Skyscrapers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Next we have Lisa Windsor, and she's one of our donut money donors. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. She says, I've been listening for a few years, never miss an episode. I've been meaning to donate for a while, so for th- thanks for the reminder to help out and send some donut money. Hope it helps a little. It helps a lot. Thank you, Linda. And she's from... Baltimore, Ontario. I didn't know there was such a thing as Baltimore, Ontario. I didn't know that either. It's interesting. I wonder if she um, changed her name from Saxe, Coburg und Gotha to Windsor. Why would she do that? Because that's... That's what the royal family did. Oh, okay. So they were Saxe, Coburg und Gotha, and they changed her name to Windsor after the war. You mean Goethe? Gotha, G-O-T-H-A. Oh, okay. I don't know. I'm probably saying it the wrong way. Yeah. Who knows? Um, and what does she do there in Baltimore, Ontario? Does she play on the baseball team, the Baltimore <laughs> Orioles? It's just too easy. Do you know how often she probably hears that? Uh, Not do you play, but do they have Baltimore? Yeah. I, I think she... What is... Where's Baltimore? Hold on. I need to look this up. Okay. Because I'm from Ontario, and I've never heard of Baltimore. It's a village mm-hmm. in Ontario. Oh, yep. oh, it's down there. It's near Rice Lake. Okay. Yeah, and it's near Coburg. So I think she does. She like on the beach mm-hmm. nearby in yep. the summertime. She rents um sea-doos. Oh, that's very or, cool. What are they called? What are they called? Yeah, sea-doo is fine. Sea-doos. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what she does. Awesome jet skis. Yeah. Jet skis. Yeah, we don't want to use a brand. Um, so thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa from Baltimore. Mm. Oh my goodness. Looks like we got some donut money from Lori St. Germain. <laughs> Lori St. Germain. She says, Hey, Mike and Matthew, we please, please grab a double, double and donuts and a chewy for Steve from oh. Spock. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. That's so cute. That's lovely. Thank you, Lori so much. And, um, I guess we're going to take a wild guess on where Laurie St. Germain is from. We can probably look on her Facebook to yeah, really yeah. figure it out. But let's let's just make something up. Where is she from? She's from Carefree, Arizona. Oh, isn't that nice? Carefree, Arizona. So it was a planned city. Oh, okay. And so all the streets are like named Ho-Hum Boulevard and Easy Street and Nevermind Trail. Oh, that's nice. I kind of like that stuff. I'd love to live on the corner of Ho Road and Hum Road. Ho and Hum. (laughs) That is really funny. (laughs) Um, What does Lori do there? (laughs) Nothing. 
Good for her. She kickbacks and she kicks back and relaxes. There you go. That's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Why don't you do it for the rest of the day after we're done all this? (sighs) (laughs) Thanks to all the patrons past and present. Yes. Because we love you. You do keep the show going. And even even if you're just a listener and not a patron. Exactly. Listening helps too. Yeah. So you can become a patron of the show at darkpatine.com slash... No, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash darkpatine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using your email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Because I said your email address. That's not good. That's not good. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find us. On, you can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, and hit the subscribe button. Subscribe, subscribe, follow, do all whatever it is that makes it download to your <laughs> machines. And my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is selling like a hot cake. Just one hot cake because it's one book. <laughs> Uh, and it, you can order it at Amazon or any other bookseller. So, Excellent. so there you go until next week. Oh, uh, oh yes. Boy, I'm all upset. Check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. (laughs) And I have a promo to insert this week. So just hang on. Insert promo here. And so the show we're promoting is called The World's Dumbest Criminals. It launched in August and my friend Tara is one of the hosts. So let's have a listen. Did you hear about the Welsh tourists who got drunk and stole a penguin named Dirk from SeaWorld on the Gold Coast? Or the Canadian guy who tried to beat a breathalyzer test by eating his own underpants? Hey, I'm Tara Saraban from World's Dumbest Criminals, an upbeat podcast about deadbeat crims. Join me every Monday to hear about the most ridiculous, bizarre and downright stupid crimes and criminals in the world ever. Like the Australian man who put out an unsuccessful hit on his wife and freaked out when she crashed her own funeral. Or the Chinese woman who deliberately ran 49 red lights in her ex-boyfriend's car. World's Dumbest Criminals is available on iTunes, Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe if you don't want to miss any criminally stupid shenanigans. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. She has a great voice. She has a great voice. Yeah, that sounds Stupid. like fun. I'm gonna, I'm gonna worms listen. and birds. And I'm, gonna, I'm gonna listen to that. You know what? She sounds like a nice lady. Hello, sound nice like that. lady. <laughs> no, I'm that. I, actually, I'm gonna listen to that podcast, and I won't fall asleep. Yep, but uh, download ours first. Okay. Yeah. So you can listen to World's Dumbest Criminals every Monday. Just like Dark Poutine, and every second every second Monday, you can hear Supernatural Circumstances. Supernatural Circumstances. Because it's very supernatural. And circumstantial. And circumstantial, yes. <laughs> so that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to each and every one of you mugs. Uh, thank you for listening, and tell your friends about us, because word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Love you. Love you lots. (laughs) Love you
new on Showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copy can on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner, all new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.